joy awaits faithful laborers in the field of the Lord's kingdom harvest. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I wonder today, are you on a mission? Are you a man on a mission? Are you a woman on a mission? Are you a young person on a mission? What does it mean to be on a mission? Well, Webster's tells us that to be on a mission means to be undertaking a task that one considers to be a very important duty. Undertaking a task that one considers to be a very important duty. Maybe there's something in your life like you've got some issue that's going on in your family right now. You're trying to resolve or correct that. And you might say you are, you are on a mission to deal with that, to correct that problem. Or maybe you are going to the grocery store and you are on a mission to get the best price you can for some particular product. But usually when we say you're on a mission, it means something that's very important, a crucial task, an important duty or responsibility. Well, all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to be on a mission, to be undertaking a task that is indeed a very important duty, a very important responsibility. We've all been given a mission. What is, what would you say, let me ask you, what is the mission of the church? What is the task that we have been given as followers of Jesus? What is the mission of the church? Spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. Okay, good. Yeah. Make disciples. There we go, good. So we make disciples by proclaiming the gospel, right? They, kinda, they go hand in hand. You can't make disciples if you don't proclaim the gospel. But proclaiming the gospel, that's just part of it. It's making disciples. Scripture tells us that this is the mission of the church that Jesus Christ has given us, to make disciples, full-fledged followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have to guess at this. I'm not making this up. The Scripture tells us this. So I want us to look, just look at a couple of passages of Scripture that speak to the mission of the church. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he is meeting then here with his disciples, and he says to them, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is our mission? To go and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, that is of all people groups all throughout the world and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what, bringing them to maturity in Christ then, making mature disciples of Jesus. Another passage is in Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, verse six, starting there, it says, so when, this is after the resurrection here, and Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven. They hear the disciples come to him, and they said they come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. See, this Holy Spirit had, had not come yet, and they were still wondering, well, what about this 
this kingdom. Now that you've been raised, are you now going to rebring the kingdom to Israel? And listen to what Jesus says, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that expression there, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's translate that, if you will, into our times. Those were cities and regions. So imagine if this had happened here and Jesus was speaking to disciples here, he might have said, you will be my witnesses here in Wonder Lake and in all of Illinois and Wisconsin and in fact, all the way to the ends of the earth, to Australia, to Africa, to everywhere, you will be my witnesses. That's what Jesus was saying to them. And then he says what? That he is going to return in the same way that he left. The angels there said, this Jesus who was taken up to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going. What? Jesus is coming back. And how is he coming back? Personally, bodily. Just as he was taken up, He's going to come back down. And scripture tells us in Zechariah, when he comes, what, his foot is going to touch down where? On Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. From I believe, this is just a theory, okay? He, he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem there at, at a particular spot. I believe when he returns, his foot is going to come down and touch on that very same spot from which he left. I can tell you for sure it's going to be the Mount of Olives, But what I can also tell you is I think, you know, it might be the very same spot from which he ascended is where he's going to return personally, bodily, and in great glory then when he returns. So what is the mission of the church? What is the task that God has given us? Well, we would say this then. The mission of the church is to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ until he comes again. That has been the mission since he ascended into heaven. It's been the mission throughout church history. It's our mission now. That will continue to be the mission of the church until Jesus returns then. So with that, we're continuing in our series here, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, doing a harmony of the Gospels where we take the Gospel accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put them together into one flowing account following the account suggested by John MacArthur here in his book, One Perfect Life, this harmony of the Gospels. For today then, we're looking at the harvest field the harvest field, and our text is going to come from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. And here is the key thought that I want us to take away from this. Joy, joy awaits faithful laborers in the field of the Lord's kingdom harvest. Now, this is the task he has given us, to go into that field 
to harvest all of those who are going to come into the kingdom. And that joy, there is great joy for those of us who are faithfully laboring in the king's harvest, in the harvest of the kingdom then. Joy awaits faithful laborers in the field of the Lord's kingdom harvest. Before we look at our text there in Luke chapter 10, a little context here. Uh, Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had sent the 12 out on a mission to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to Israel. When we say Jesus' disciples, we tend to think of the 12, those immediate closest ones, but he actually had many disciples. The 12 were just the ones, some of the ones who were closest to him and whom he put particular attention. So earlier in then, he had sent the 12 out on a mission to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to Israel, and he gave them similar instructions to what he says here then to a larger group. The mission of the 12 then served to prepare people to receive the ministry of Jesus as well as helping to prepare the disciples for the mission that they would one day soon have to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so here then, as we're about to read, Jesus is sending out a larger group of disciples to go ahead of him to proclaim the kingdom, the arrival of the kingdom but this time it would be in a largely Gentile area. But it too would foreshadow the mission that they would all soon be given to proclaim the gospel message everywhere and to help prepare them for their task. And by the way, a brief note of explanation here on a textual matter. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this here, but just to avoid any confusion there might be, if you have your Bibles and you are turned to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, some of you may have a translation that says that 70 persons were appointed, while others of you may have a translation that says 72 so wait, which is it, 70 or 72? Well, the reason for this is, is because some of the early manuscripts, as you know, we do not have the original manuscripts, but we have many manuscripts, many copies. And some of those, some of those early ones have 70, while others have 72. So which is it? Well, as I said, without spending too much time on the issue right here now, the matter, I think, may best be explained in this way. It is likely that the reason that Jesus appointed here 70 or 72 is because they were going into largely Gentile areas and those numbers 70 or 72 represented all of the nations of the world biblically. Because in Genesis chapter 10, it lists 70 nations in the world at that time in Genesis 10 in the Hebrew text. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, lists 72 for reasons we won't go into here. And so Luke, a Gentile, likely would have used that Greek translation of the Old Testament, and therefore he probably wrote 72. And then possibly later, a scribe who was copying the text may have written 70 in order to align with the Hebrew text from Genesis 10. Who has gone asleep at this point here, right? I don't know. So hence then, there's strong textual evidence for both of the numbers. But the important point is this. What's the important point, folks? Whether the number is 70 or 72, the significance lies in that it is telling us 
that the message of the kingdom is for all the nations of the world. It is for all of the people of the world. That is the point to take away then from that. So with that then, let's look then at the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse one. We're told, after these things, the Lord appointed 70, or 72, others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So here in this first section, we're seeing some of the the missions and the instructions that Jesus is giving and why he's giving these instructions. But first we see the mission here, that he appoints these 70 others and that they were to go two by two then before him. Jesus was going to go into those places later, but he wanted to send them ahead to proclaim the message of the kingdom, the good news. He was about to go, but he wanted them to go ahead to set the stage, if you will. As I said, Jesus had many disciples besides the 12, but here he appoints then a larger group of disciples then and sends them out then for this purpose. Why two by two? Well, I think for mutual support and encouragement, protection, but I think it also though speaks to the biblical standard of establishing something by the testimony of two witnesses. They were to proclaim the message of the kingdom. The kingdom was what? The kingdom is the rule and the reign of God over all things. And in particular here then, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the promised Messiah. They were to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. That is that their Messiah would soon be there among them to proclaim this good news. So this was the mission But he tells them, though, to pray. He says, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is the harvest? The harvest is people. The harvest refers to people who need to hear the good news of the kingdom and to then be gathered into God's presence. So there was a harvest of people in that day. There is a harvest of people now, here, in our day. There is the harvest of people of all of the ages, of people who have heard or will hear the good news, to respond in faith to that and then be brought into God's presence to be the recipients of God's, la- uh, of God's love and favor and blessing forever. So this is the harvest. The harvest is people 
People who need to hear the message. People who need to be brought into right relationship with God then. And he says, the harvest truly is great. That is such a a great number of people. Scripture tells us, and we see it in Revelation, that what God is redeeming a vast multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and from every epoch of human history. And given the magnitude of the task, more workers were needed. He was sending out 70, but that wasn't enough even. There were more that were needed then. And think about since then. Think about in our day. We need more laborers, don't we? To go into the kingdom harvest field and proclaim the news there. So the harvest is so abundant, more workers are needed to proclaim. So he says, pray. Pray for God to send more workers into the field. Now, how many of you are like me here, and maybe you start you wondering a little bit, do you have any theologically, well, we're all theologically minded one way or another. We all, we all are theologians, whether we realize it or not. Sometimes very good theologians, sometimes very bad theologians, but we're all theologians, right? Trying to understand God and the ways of God. And so sometimes, you know, you read this, and, I, and I'm thinking, and some of you out here are thinking this right now, I know it, are thinking like, well, wait a minute, here's this great task. This is something God desires to do. You know, he wants to, to, to bring this great harvest to people. He is going to do this. So why is he telling them to pray for them to do something he's going to do anyway, right? Okay, who thought that? Am I the only one? Okay, we got at least one here, right? So, so why does he tell them to pray then that why should they pray for God to do something he already wills to do? What do you think? Well, I think the answer to that is this, is that God is indeed sovereign over all and he will indeed accomplish his sovereign purposes. Will anything stop God from accomplishing the purpose that he has to do? Of course not. He will. And yet he says, pray. Pray for me to send people. Well, I think this God is indeed sovereign over all, and he chooses to use human beings like you and me to accomplish his sovereign will. Now, I have not yet figured out all the mysteries of how God both sovereignly works his will and yet also uses human beings who have their own wills. There's some theories out there on that. I think ultimately that comes down to a mystery. God has sovereign purposes. He will do it. And yet at the same time, he calls you and me to be a part of that. He uses us and he uses our wills in doing these things. So what's the bottom line in all that? to get lost in some theological uh, mystery we may never fully understand? No. I think the, it's this. What is he doing? He tells us to pray, to act, and then to ultimately depend on him who is the Lord of the harvest. He's the sovereign Lord of the harvest. And that is so often the case, isn't it, in our lives? We are to pray and to act but ultimately to depend on the sovereign Lord 
in all things, right? We also see a sense of urgency here. Jesus says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. And greet no one along the road. And he goes on to say, do not go from house to house. He says he's sending them out like lambs among wolves. That picture certainly is one of, sounds like a dangerous situation, isn't it? It is, right? <laughs> going to Chicago, someone says, hey, I'm going there next weekend, so you better pray for me, right? You will, yeah, you will. okay. So <laughs> anyway, um, sending out lambs among wolves, it certainly indicates a potentially dangerous situation. And we need God's protection, don't we, then, in that? But I think there's something else Jesus may have been thinking when he said that. And that is to say that the disciples are like lambs among the wolves, that we are to act like lambs among the wolves, meaning that we were not to convert by force, but rather conversion comes by preaching the good news and calling for people to respond willingly to that, that genuine commitment to Christ cannot be compelled by force. Also then, he tells them to greet no one along the road. Now what's going on? Is Jesus telling them to be antisocial? What, just walk along and don't greet anybody? No, he's saying this is not a call to be antisocial. What it was is it was a way of saying, do not get sidetracked in lengthy greetings and socializing while you have an important job to do. Right? So Jesus had called them to go and proclaim, to proclaim it everywhere, and don't be walking along and running and say, oh, hey, how you doing? And the next thing you know, you're just talking and talking to this person, greeting and socializing, and then all this time has gone by when you should have been in, this, in the town proclaiming, Right? Do we have anybody here who engages in lengthy greetings? Do you greet someone, right? Okay, all right, we've got at least one person that is admitted. Now, I'm not gonna point you out, but you're here, trust me, you are. You know, the ones where you're like, okay, uh, you start, you look at your watch a little bit, like I'm gonna be here or for a while with this person, right? And then you look at your watch and 10 minutes have gone by and they're still talking, and then pretty soon 20 minutes have gone by. I'm not naming names, but you know who you are, right? And I think what Jesus is speaking to here is urgency. So when he says, do not greet anyone, do not greet, he's not saying, be antisocial, don't say hello. He's saying, don't get sidetracked from the mission with lengthy socializing instead of proclaiming the message that they were called to do. So it's about urgency then, staying focused on the mission. And the same thing then, I think, where they were told not to go from house to house. I think, you know, they were to go, when, they, when someone took them in and welcomed them, they were to stay there. That was their base of operation. Don't be going around from house to house. Be, be, just accept the accommodations that you have here. And don't be spending, around going, spending all your time visiting people from house to house to house Stay where you are and go out and proclaim your missions. Come back to the house. Don't be going around, again, getting sidetracked from the important mission, focusing on the urgent task 
at hand, going about proclaiming it to as many people as possible. So you see the mission that they've been given. You see the need to pray, to pray, to act, but, so, but depend on the sovereign Lord though too. The urgency with which they are to be about this mission, but then also the dependency that they were to express. He says, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Hmm, don't carry a money bag, knapsack, or sandals. No money bag, no knapsack of supplies, but rather what? They were to depend upon God to supply their needs. He was looking to teach them dependence on him, to trust him. And by the way, when he says, don't take sandals, that doesn't mean, don't, he wasn't saying, go barefoot. Believe me, you don't want to be walking around that countryside barefoot, okay? You want your sandals. Jesus isn't saying, don't wear sandals. What is he saying? He's, not, he's saying, the one pair you have, that's enough. Don't be carrying extra sandals and all of that. But what? Just get busy doing the mission. Let me supply your need as that comes up, Right? So they were to depend entirely on God to supply their needs. And God would supply their needs through the people whom they served. As they entered a house, they were to say, peace to this house. God's peace, his shalom, represented spiritual blessings and wholeness. Shalom doesn't just mean hello. (laughs) Shalom means peace, like all of God's blessing be upon you, the shalom of God, wholeness and blessing. So if the person who lived there was receptive to this, a son of peace, to be a son of something meant you were characterized by that. So if you were a person who was characterized by God's shalom, you would receive that and God's blessing would rest upon that household. But if not, then your blessing would return to you. And God's blessing would not rest on that household. And so as they went about carrying about their mission, some people would believe and they would receive them. Others, others, though, would not believe and they would reject them. So let's see what Jesus says about that. He says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, Eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you, has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. 
He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Pretty powerful words there. So we're looking at how Jesus was either received or rejected and a warning that Jesus gives. First, reception, that is those people who received him. He says, if they receive you, then eat what is set before you, heal the sick there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Some people would receive them. They would welcome them, and the people would want to hear the message, and they would respond in faith. And they would provide hospitality for the messengers. So if the disciples were received and made welcome in a particular town, it indicated that the hearts of the people there were open to the gospel message. They were to heal the sick and say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Healing the sick was a sign of salvation and was the physical evidence that the kingdom of God was present. Others, however, would not believe them and would reject them. Says, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. So if the people rejected the message, the messengers were to acknowledge that rejection and to publicly warn them of the consequences of rejection, to go out into the streets, publicly announce judgment against them, to wipe the dust off your feet. And that culture was a symbolic way of indicating judgment for that rejection there. But then Jesus warns, he says, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day. What is that day? The day of judgment for Sodom than for that city. Sodom was what? A town infamously acknowledged as coming under divine judgment in the Old Testament scriptures, right? There were others, Tyre and Sidon as well, that came under God's divine judgment that we read about in the Old Testament scriptures. But here Jesus is saying, okay, those towns, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon, you think of judgment when you hear those towns? Well, I've got some other towns that actually, you know what, the judgment for them is going to be much harsher and more strict even than it was for Sodom. And those towns are what? Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Well, you know, when Jesus was doing his ministry, the overwhelming majority of his ministry was in this tiny little portion of Galilee on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus set his headquarters up there in a town called Capernaum. Not far from there were two other towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he did most of his mighty miracles and preaching there in that area. Now the place where Jesus did most of his miracles and teaching, surely they believed, right? No, they rejected him. By the way, what do you think that says to us sometimes today? Today some people will say, well, you know, I just wish... God would just make himself more obvious to me. If God would just so more clearly reveal himself to me, well, then I would believe and I would obey. To which I would say, well, you know what? We have plenty of examples in Scripture of those who actually saw the most of Christ were the first to reject him. Why? 
Because belief is not just about seeing facts and, that, and lining things up in our brains and making or reaching rational, logical conclusions. It's a heart matter, right? Right, Mary? It's a heart matter. It's a matter of the heart. It doesn't matter what we may see if we don't want to believe. And unfortunately, for all the, the good news is good news indeed, isn't it? But in order to understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is what? That we are all sinners under God's righteous judgment. People don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear the good news because I don't want to believe the bad news about me. And so they reject. So Jesus warns these communities, saying, you know, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Tyre and Sidon than it is for you. And he has special words for Capernaum, his adopted headquarters there. He says, you who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. They were privileged to be the headquarters of the Son of God in his earthly ministry. And he said, what? You were exalted to heaven, but you're going to be brought down to Hades, to hell. Wow. Pretty tough words, isn't it? But then he also says, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if people received the messengers of Jesus, they were receiving Jesus. And if they were receiving Jesus, they were receiving God the Father who sent him. But if people who are proclaiming the message of Jesus, they are rejected, they're not just rejecting the messenger, they're rejecting Jesus who sent them. And if they reject Jesus who sent the messengers, they're rejecting God the Father who sent Jesus. So it is a serious thing. Just like, for example, a foreign ruler who rejects another nation's ambassador rejects the leader of that nation who sent the ambassador, right? That ambassador goes with a message, but the, the leader of that other nation doesn't want it, rejects that. You're not rejecting the ambassador. Who are you rejecting? The one who sent the ambassador, right? So to reject Gospel proclaimers is to reject Christ himself and ultimately God the Father then as well. But I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on this note. It says, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Joy. The 70 returned with joy. They've been faithful in their mission, and now they're returning, and they have joy in their hearts. They're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. But Jesus says, what? Don't, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in this spiritual power that you have been given. Rejoice instead in what? That your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that you have eternal life. Don't rejoice in results or even spiritual power. Rejoice in the fact that you have eternal life. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. So disciples then should not rejoice in spiritual power, but in the greatness of God and in the salvation that he has given them. But Jesus also says, before he tells them that, rejoice that your names are, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What exactly was he referring to there? Well, it's quite possibly a reference to Satan's original fall from heaven long before, that he saw that. But I think it more likely that here Jesus is referring to see that he saw Satan being defeated as people were responding in faith to the preaching of the kingdom message. Yes, he had seen Satan fall from heaven long before this, but I think he was saying that he saw, as they were preaching, he saw that Satan was being defeated as people responded in faith to the kingdom message. And he's rejoicing in that. So serpents and scorpions, then, he says, are symbols of danger and evil, and saying that God then would protect them as they were fulfilling his will in proclaiming the message of the kingdom. But it has been suggested, too, that perhaps Jesus might have been giving a warning against spiritual pride. I think that's possible as well. Lord, we've gone out. Even the demons are subject to us. And he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. So watch out, right? That's possible as well then. But then Jesus rejoices as well in the spirit. He gives thanks. And he gives thanks that God uses the simple things that a child can understand to shame those who think themselves wise in this world, but they're actually foolish in God's eyes. And we see that the Father and the Son of God are in intimate relationship here. And Jesus came to, to earth to reveal the Father to a lost world. And then Jesus tells them too that they should take great joy in how they are blessed and happy to see something which many kings and prophets before had not seen, had not had the privilege of seeing, namely the arrival of God's promised salvation, the arrival of Messiah in the beginning of the promised kingdom then. So you might say, well, so what? What do you want me to do with all of that? So what? What should I do with this? I remind you this, joy awaits faithful laborers in the field of the Lord's 
kingdom harvest. I wonder, are you, are you on a mission? What is the mission? What is the mission of the church? What, to make disciples, to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. For how long? Until Jesus comes again, right? To continue to make disciples. So are you on mission? Or have you allowed socializing or other things to distract you from the mission? We need to be proclaiming the gospel. Proclaim the gospel certainly by your verbal testimony, but also I think we proclaim the gospel not just by what we say, but also very importantly what? By how we live. By our character and our deeds. Does your life reflect the gospel message that you have believed it, that you have received it? Not just verbally what you say, does your life line up with what you say? Are you on mission? But then also I would say rejoice. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You know what? We can't control people's responses to the gospel message, can we? We can't control that. Some may believe and receive and there's, there's joy in that when people do. But oftentimes people don't believe. They don't receive it. They reject it. And when they reject the message, they reject us, but really they're not rejecting us. What are they rejecting? They're rejecting Christ and God the Father. So if we rejoice only when people respond in true faith, we may not rejoice very often, right? But whether they believe or not, we don't rejoice in results that we see. We rejoice in what? That our names are written in the book of life. Our names are written in heaven. So rejoice then that you have been given the gift of eternal life. So be a faithful laborer. Stay on mission. Don't get distracted. Proclaim the gospel with your lips and with your life. And whatever the results, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful ambassadors. You have sent us all on a mission to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all the peoples of the earth, and to that we would continue to do this until you come again, Lord Jesus. May we be found faithful. May we be faithful to tell others the good news. May our lives line up with that. Not that we are perfect men and women. We are not, Lord. But do people see the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ and the salvation he has given in us, in our character, in our deeds? May we be faithful, Lord to proclaim with our lives as well as with our lips. And Lord, may we rejoice that no matter what the outcome, no matter what the results, we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And we thank you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.